May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. A couple of years ago, um, Marie Kondo wrote this little book entitled The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. And the subtitle was The Japanese Art of Decluttering and Organizing. If someone bought you a copy, you know right away what your friends think about you. And hopefully that didn't happen. Uh, her her uh, main claim in the book was um, that by discarding unnecessary things and keeping to a neat, minimalist approach in life, a person will discover all sorts of, of ancillary benefits. There will be all kinds of good things that will happen to them. Their lives will be dramatically altered. Testimonials include um, uh, people who've lost weight, marriages who were happier, um, greater production at work, and on and on and on. And I read that little excerpt about the book and thought, who would have thought that such a a small act would have such a life-altering sense of uh, effect on you? And I'm not really sure that I buy into it. I don't like to tidy up. I really don't. I like to live in a tidy space. I'm just not committed to the work of actually doing the tidying up. You know, um, I, I, I just can't do it. Besides that, I'm a bit of a pack rat. I, I keep things, lots of things. Um, no moment of happiness is almost as great as that time when I discover something that I need something, rather, that I already have. Like, let's just say in maybe in 1996, I'm... Um, I'm working on something in the house, you know, maybe a gutter, or working on the car perhaps or something like that, and, and I'm out replacing the radiator hose and I, and I need new clamps. And so in 1996, I go to the auto parts store and I, don't, I need two of them for the radiator hose. I don't buy two because one could break, right? So I buy an extra in case one breaks. And then another extra just in case, right? So I need two, but I buy four. This is what I do. And, um, and they go in the, the two that I don't need, go into the box of stuff, the extra box of stuff that I keep for those occasions. And, and fast forward a couple of decades, and I'm helping my kid work on his car, and we need a radiator hose clamp. And I think to myself, there might be one in the box. And I go in the box, and sure enough, like a nearly new you know, 20-year-old radiator hose clamp is in there. And we use it. And, and and something that I had saved becomes useful. I mean, that's a great day. It's a, that's a gold ribbon, a, a gold star day, a blue ribbon day, whatever you say. Um, something that I had saved comes back. It just doesn't get much better than that. The only problem is that you save a radiator hose clamp, and that leads to, like, extra plumbing parts. And then um, you have... Um, extra bicycle inner tubes. I have three at home. Um, you have, uh, you know, lumber and, and adhesives and solvents. And why are you looking like Dale? I think there's somebody else who does this sort of thing. You know, that you have all this stuff, all these extra things, and, and not even when you get into the box of screws and nuts and bolts and all that sort of stuff. And it's all fun and games until somebody goes and buys you a book about the art of tidying up, you know, and then you, you know what they think about you. The problem with pack rats is that we run out of space sooner or later. But we're an ingenious lot, aren't we? We pack rats. You know what happens when we run out of space? <laughs> we build new spaces. Yes, we, we, we get new spaces. We're an ingenious lot. You know, I, I think I told you this before. One time 
I was in, um, in South Africa, and this fellow asked me, he said, is it true in America that you build homes and you fill them up with things, and then you build little homes outside and you fill them up with things? And I said, well, you know, it's kind of like that. It really does happen. Um, yeah, so we, we, we buy these little storage units. You know these little storage units? You see them all over. I mean, there's one right like a, a block away from us right here. Um, in the United States of America, there are 43,317 self-storage units. They range in size from like a, a closet size to like a full garage size and, and on up. There are 60,000 such units in the entire world. That means seven out of every ten of them are in the United States of America. They add up uh, to a, 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 the rental on these things comes 37 billion, billion with a B, dollars in revenue in the United States every year alone. If you took all the self-storage units in the United States, just the ones in the United States, and laid them side by side, there would be 2.35 billion, billion with a B, square feet of space under roof. That's more square footage than the entire Department of Defense has under roof. That's more than every Air Force base, every Army base, every Marine Corps base, every Naval base, every Coast Guard facility, and the Pentagon building itself under roof. If you laid all the square footage out side by side, it would be three times the size of the island of Manhattan. That's how much storage space we have in the United States alone. And I'm guessing Marie Kondo would say that we don't need that much storage space. We just need less stuff. Again, I haven't read the book because I'm against this sort of thing. But I, I, I don't like people pointing out my bad habits. But I think she would say that we probably need to take time to think about the things that we really need rather than buying storage to store things we might need. In the gospel lesson, you know this familiar story. Jesus is baptized. He's baptized by a man named John down at the Jordan River. And people are coming from all over, from the Judean country and from Jerusalem, city folk and country folk. He says all the people of Jerusalem. I don't think he means literally every single person in Jerusalem. You know there was some guy who was like, I'm not going. And his wife is saying, my mother warned me about you. You know, you should be going. And he's like, no, I'm not going. I'm staying here. But Mark was saying that people from all over, all kinds of people, people from every walk of life, rich and poor, uh, men and women, boys and girls, all sorts of people were coming to John for baptism. And Mark says they were doing it as a sign, a sign that they were repenting of their sins. This is a mass act of contrition, isn't it? I mean, it's like widespread revival is going on. That people are saying, I have been acting in ways that are contrary to um, a relationship with God, and, I, and I'm turning from that, and I'm, I'm turning towards the Lord. I'm, I'm making room, as it were, for God in my life. It's a sign of, of committing themselves to their religious life. And I think that, that would be itself just a bit of a surprising thing. I mean, could you imagine it happening today? Thousands of people flocking. I don't know, maybe like Bethesda Fountain in, in Central Park, you know. They're all coming down to be baptized. And the guy doing the baptizing is a homeless man, you know. This is what he would look like. 
Because this is what John the Baptist looks like. Mark tells us exactly his appearance. John was clothed in camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Locusts are insects, you know, right? He, this, this is his diet, you know. He's chewing on these things and eating wild honey. And John says that there's one coming after him whose shoes he's not willing to untie, who's not worthy, rather, to untie. And immediately Jesus shows up. The heavens open. A voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And you say, of course it is. Of course he is. Yes, this is what Jesus is. He's the Son of God in whom the Lord himself is well pleased. But have you ever wondered why Jesus would have presented himself for baptism? This is a baptism of repentance. What is it that Jesus has to repent of? If God is pleased with him, what does he have to repent of? Why is he there in this sign of repentance? And I think the answer is nothing. He has nothing of which to repent. But in doing this, he identifies with us. In all of our sinfulness, in all of our ugliness, he's identifying with us. I think in all the complexity of this story, that the central reality is that in Jesus' baptism, it shows us that God is making room for us. I think this whole passage is about making room. Let's work our way backward just a minute. You remember the story of the birth of Jesus. Of course you do. It was two weeks ago. If you don't, you should know it by now. The birth of Jesus, it happens surrounded by people who shouldn't be there. Shepherds and magi. Uh, shepherds who are, uh, you know, systemically unclean, un- uh, not permitted to worship in the temple in Jerusalem. Magi who are uh, sorcerers and necromancers, these people who are um, in touch with a religious life that is, is totally forbidden by Israelite religion. And yet there they are, born in a manger, of course, no place for a king, unless a king is saying that I have room for all people. This is about God identifying with us and our sinfulness and everything, making room for us. And John the baptizer himself, he's a monk, a hermit, somebody who has gone out away from society to live in in the caves of the wilderness in order to get away from people so that he can dedicate himself entirely to God. This is why he wears this strange outfit. This is why he eats this strange diet. And yet here he is returning, returning to the people of God returning to the crowds and baptizing them. And then there are the crowds themselves, workaday people just like you and me, regular, ordinary citizens. And here they are presenting themselves for baptism, doing a a moral inventory of their lives, repenting of the things that they have allowed into their lives that they shouldn't have, repenting of the fact that they had not allowed in their lives that one thing, place for God that they should have. They're shunning their pride and and embracing humility and repenting. I thought about how this kind of related to Marie Kondo's life-changing magic of tidying up. So she thinks the magic is like in removing clutter so that we can focus on what really matters. And I suppose in a metaphoric sense, I agree with her that we do feel refreshed and invigorated Lives are better when we remove clutter that we shouldn't have. 
Um, I'm not sure that it really happens from organizing your t-shirt drawer. (laughs) I think it has more to do with a moral inventory of going through and saying that there are so many things that kind of creep into our lives that take up time and energy that are nowhere near the sort of things that lead us towards faith and wholeness. And so a a, a work of decluttering is good. And I thought about how this kind of comes to us at the beginning of a new year. I don't know about you, but I do make sort of um, these, uh, uh, you know, what do you call them, resolutions. Resolutions to... um, to be, you know, more disciplined or whatever. I, I always want to say I'm going to get rid of some stuff. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to declutter. I'm, there's this box right here. I'm going to get rid of that one and, and be down to 12 boxes. You know, uh, this is the sort of thing that, that I'm going to do. Maybe you do the same things. Maybe get rid of bad habits or whatever. Maybe the best resolution, though, is to take a moral inventory of our lives. To see the sort of things that are cluttering bringing about, um, uh, you know, a a sense of of crowdedness in our life. Get rid of that which doesn't matter and hold on to that which does. As you come to communion this morning, there's a baptismal font out there with some water in it. I encourage you to think through these things, to reaffirm your baptism yourself, and to decide that um, this is the year where we declutter and hold on to that which matters. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.